Let's open our Bibles while you're already there. John chapter 7, I'll, I'll open mine. I'm uh, very organized today. I forgot the first page of my outline, ripped it off with some other pages that were in front, so I, I spent the last uh, 10 minutes trying to reconstruct it. And I think I got there, but uh, you know, we'll see. Anyway, John chapter 7, let's first remind ourselves of the purpose of the book of John, and uh, that is, of course, not found in John chapter 7, but is stated expressly in John chapter 20, verse 31. John says, but these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So there are really two purposes that John has in recording what he does in the gospel. The first one is that you will believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And the second thing is that you will, in believing that, have life in his name. So anytime we look at the book of John, we need to keep that purpose in mind. Um, We are in a section of the book of John that we have labeled the book of signs. Uh, That's the first 12 chapters of the book of John. And uh, in that, we see seven signs. Uh, that are uh, brought to us by John for the purpose of showing who Christ is and having us believe in his name. And we have already seen five of those signs in the book of signs. Uh, We saw the water changed into wine at the wedding at Cana in Galilee. We saw the healing of the nobleman's son, which was also in Galilee. Uh, We saw the healing of the lame man at the pool, uh, which was in Judea. We saw the feeding of the 5,000, which is also in Galilee, and then Jesus walking on the water in Galilee. So, so far we've seen five signs. In the book of signs, there are also several long speeches. Um, As a lawyer, I'm very familiar with long speeches. But um, there are several of these that are made by Jesus. And again, John puts these speeches or discourses into his book so that we can understand who Jesus is. And so far, we have seen four discourses uh, as to Jesus' identity. Uh, John chapter 7 begins the fifth discourse. And uh, the first four discourses spoke about the new birth or being born again. Um, That was a conversation that Jesus had with Nicodemus. The second one was his conversation with the Samaritan woman, in which he spoke of the fact that he uh, brought to people living water. Uh, the, the third one was Jesus' discourse after healing the man at the pool, in which he talked about the fact that he was the divine son. And he talked about the fact that there were many things that testified to his uh, nature as the divine son, including the scriptures and the father, John the Baptist, his miracles, those sorts of things he spoke of as proving who he was. And then finally, uh, the, the, the fourth discourse that we had before John chapter 7 is the discourse on the bread of life, that Jesus is the bread of life. Now, as we've looked at Jesus' public ministry, we've seen a few things happen. And I think it's important to understand where we're at when we start in chapter 7. And obviously the reason for this is if you look at chapter 7, verse 1, the first two words of that uh, uh, chapter are, after this, okay? So John is obviously relating this chapter to what's happened before. 
And uh, in chapter 5, um, we have seen Jesus begin his public ministry, and he took it to Judea, and he healed the man at the pool. And that was a very interesting thing, because what happened was, as he began to do these miracles, and people began to see them and understand what they were, then people began to follow him, right? So when, when he gets to Judea, things are going pretty well. Uh, if we were looking at, you know, kind of a up or down line on Jesus' ministry, it's going up, okay? And uh, as we get into chapter 6 and Jesus moves on to Galilee, uh, that line continues to go up, right? Um, because, you know, he feeds the 5,000 and uh, people are going, ooh, we like this guy. This, is, this guy is really cool, right? And, and in fact, if you look at chapter 6, in uh, verse 15 of chapter 6, um, he's, they're getting to the point now where they really like this guy, right? Because what it says is, after the people saw the miraculous sign that Jesus did, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who has come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. Okay? So, as, as we can see now, you know, people are starting to be convinced. There's something special about this guy. He may, in fact, be the Messiah. And so, it's our job now to install him as the king. Right? Okay. So, line's going up. But, problem. Okay? Small problem. Jesus then opens his mouth and begins talking. A lot of times when politicians do that, it's a problem, right? Well, it, it became a problem for Jesus, even though he wasn't a politician. And, and the reason was because the message that he gave them uh, in, in chapter 6 was not a message they wanted to hear. He started talking about things like eating his flesh and drinking his blood and, you know, where is this guy coming from? You know, we're starting to hear things we didn't expect when we voted for him, right? This is getting a little weird. And so, the line starts going down, doesn't it? And, and when we get to the end of chapter 6, the line is so far down that, you know, all kinds of people have left him. And, you know, he's even talking to his disciples, you know, the, the last 12 guys standing, Right? He's even saying, oh, I suppose you guys want to leave too, right? And, and, of course, Peter says, no, 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 you know, we have nowhere to go. We still believe in you. But, I mean, uh, things are getting a little shaky for Jesus' public ministry. So, that's where we are when we get to chapter 7, right? Now, Jesus had four brothers. We know that. We even know their names from other Gospels, uh, there was James, and there was Jude. They wrote books in the Bible. There was Joseph, and there was Simon. And there's some argument about whether they were, in fact, Mary's children, because some people believe that Mary was a virgin for her entire life. Um, but I don't know that that's true. I think these were probably Jesus' brothers, Joseph and Mary's sons. And uh, so, anyway, there's these four guys, okay? And they sort of form a political action committee right? They kind of say, okay, we've sort of seen Jesus uh, stumble a little bit here, 
and he, he kind of messed up. And now if you notice, it says, after this, Jesus went around in Galilee, purposely staying away from Judea, okay? And so these brothers are watching Jesus, and they're going, Jesus, you know, you want to be the Messiah, right? What are you doing hanging around in this backwater? You know, this Galilee is nowhere. You need to be where the center of the Jewish faith is. If you want to be the Jewish Messiah, if you want to be the top guy in Judaism, you need to get out of this backwater and you need to get where people can see you. Right? That, that's perfect advice for politicians, isn't it? I mean, if that's what Jesus really was, you know, why was he hanging around Galilee? And his brothers basically had a four-point program for him. They said, okay, number one, uh, you know, um, well, one thing I should note before we get there is there was a reason that Jesus was hanging around in Galilee, and that's expressed in John chapter 7. And that reason was because the Jews there in Judea were waiting to take his life. Okay? Hmm. Well, that puts a different character on it, doesn't it? You know, you'll remember that back in chapter 5, the healing of the lame man, well, that occurred on a certain day. And that day was the Sabbath. Okay? And that made several people mad, some of which were pretty powerful people. And as a matter of fact, if we go back to chapter 5, in verse 18... Uh, you will see what's going on there. Um, It says uh, in verse 18, for this reason, and um, this is in part because of the healing that Jesus did on the Sabbath, and in part because he's defending it on the basis that he's doing the Father's work. Okay? It says in verse 18, for this reason, the Jews tried all the harder to kill him, not only because he was breaking the Sabbath, but He was even calling God his own father and making himself equal with God. So see, he had already ticked off some pretty powerful people in Judea. And he knew that if he went back there, his life was in serious danger. Okay? So, but, you know, his brothers, thinking that he wants to be king, uh, said, guys, you know, this is not how you become king, Jesus. So there there are really four things they say to him. First off, first off, they say, you ought to leave here, okay? This is in verse 3. He says, you ought to leave here and go to Judea, all right? So you're in a backwater. You need a bigger stage, okay? That's the first thing they tell him. The second thing they say is, the place you need to go is Judea. Because, number one, if, if you'll remember, the last time you were in Judea, things got going for you, you know? Your poll numbers started to go up. And, and now that you're in Galilee, it's crashed. You're in this backwater and your poll numbers have crashed. And so you need to get back to the place where you're going to have the biggest crowds and they're going to see what you do. Then the second thing they say to him is, you need to do that so your disciples can see the miracles you do. See, this is a gifted guy, okay? If, uh, if Good Morning Israel had uh, interviewed uh, the brothers of Jesus, you know, and they said, well, um, guys, what do you think of Jesus? Is he a good guy? They would have said, oh, yeah, he's a, he's a really good guy. You know, he's honest, he's trustworthy, he's compassionate. 
He's, he's helpful. He's, he's one of the greatest brothers you could possibly have. Okay? And, and they, if they asked him, you know, uh, is, is he a powerful guy? Is he a gifted guy? They would have said, oh, absolutely. I mean, some of the things he's done have been amazing. I mean, he's healing people. You know, he's turning water into wine. I mean, this is not something the ordinary guy does. Right? So, they're saying, you know, you're a gifted guy, Jesus. You need to go public with this. You need to get where people other, other people can see it. And you need to show them what you can do. So, this is their plan for him. You know, they just, they just want their brother to be the Messiah. If that's what he wants to be. Now, there's only one problem with this. Okay? There's one problem with their plan. And, and that comes in. In verse 5. That verse says, For even his own brothers did not believe in him. Okay? So, for all of the plans they're making for him, they still don't really think he's the Messiah. Alright? They they don't get it. They're saying, uh, yeah, you know, he may be a gifted guy, he may be a nice guy, but if that interview turned to the question whether he was the Messiah, his brothers would say... No. <laughs> I mean, you know, we lived with the guy. We slept with him. We did all those things that little boys do with him. He's not the Messiah. You know, he hasn't got any of the characteristics that we would expect in the Messiah. Right? So, they don't believe in him. And, and their agenda is a very different agenda than the one that Jesus is on. In a way, there's, there's echoes here of this, the temptation of Jesus by Satan. Because, uh, interesting to look at that, if you look at Luke chapter 4, that's where one of the places where it talks about the temptation of Jesus. And you'll remember the three things that Satan said to Jesus, right? First one was, Jesus, you're hungry, right? You've been here 40 days, no food. Guess what you get to do? turn stones into bread. Right? Okay, so so that's number one. Number two is, hey, uh, by the way, uh, I happen to be the guy who owns all the kingdoms in the world, and all you have to do is bow down to me, and they will be yours. Right? So, stones into bread, all the kingdoms in the world. Right? And number three is, you know, go public, Jesus. Show everybody who you are. If you're the Son of God, go to the top of the temple and do a base jump, right? And, and just take off. And, and as you're falling, you know, headfirst to the ground, God's angels will, will uh, save you and, and you will show everybody that you are the Son of God, right? Well, there's kind of echoes of those temptations in John. Now, he never speaks of the temptation. But interestingly enough, if you look at John, look, for example, at John chapter 6, verse 15. Okay, we just talked about that one. Jesus had fed the 5,000, right? And in John chapter 6, verse 15, then, it says, okay, we want to make him king. Now, the people were ready to make him king at that point in time, just as Satan was ready to make him king in the wilderness, and again, Jesus says, oh, can't do that. I'm on a different agenda. 
right? So he passed up that temptation for a second time. John chapter 6, verse 31. These are the Jews, and you know, they're they're wanting to believe in him, and you know, he's already fed the five thousand, and he said, if you'll remember that whole thing, it kind of takes us back to Moses and manna, and and they're saying, Okay, Jesus, we like this, you know. Uh, you have fed us bread one time, but but remember, Moses did that every day. Okay? I mean, we had manna every day. So, in John chapter 6, verse 31, he says, So they asked him, What miraculous sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our forefathers ate the manna in the desert. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. So, see, temptation number two, we'll follow you, Jesus, if you just turn stones into bread. If you'll just give us bread. Right? Did Jesus do it? Well, sort of. <laughs> okay. But it was a little different than they were expecting. Do you see what I'm saying? Third one, all right? Here we are. Third one is right here. Look, Jesus, you know, go public. If you're the Messiah, get out there and show everybody. Right? Temptation number three. See, this is Satan's agenda all over again. And Jesus knew it. And Jesus said, sorry, guys. You know, that's not my agenda. And, and why is it not my agenda? Because it's not God's agenda. Now, I, I don't want to spend too much time on this point. But I think we have to be careful in the church. We have to be very careful because... Very often, what we're told in the church is, hey, listen, if you could just make your message a little more relevant, you know, if you could just make this message something that sounds good to my ears today, then, you know, we'll follow you. We'll come there. But you guys are so irrelevant. You're so old school. You're so focused on this Bible thing. What is your problem? Don't you understand that's an old book from a long time ago that has no meaning today? I mean, we've already figured out that this Bible thing is just a bunch of crap. So why are you following it? See, I think what we have to do as a church is we have to do the same thing that Jesus did. We have to resist the temptation to make our message so relevant that we lose our mission that we lose our agenda, that we lose our understanding of what we're about. See, we as the church are doing the same thing that John is doing. We are proclaiming Christ, Jesus, as the Christ, the Son of God. And we are bringing people to belief in His name. Why? So that they will have life in His name. And we simply can't get away from that agenda just because we want to be relevant. Just because we want to have more people in the door. We can't do that as the church. And I think, unfortunately, very often that happens. Now, what does Jesus respond? He says to them, uh, Okay, guys, um, you know, I understand what you're saying, but the right time for me has not yet come. Okay? Time's not right yet. Um, you know, 
The world doesn't hate you, see? Um, you know, you're, you're on their agenda, and, and you're going to do what they do, and so you can go to the feast. It's okay. But I have a little bit more of a problem. Okay? Because, see, the, the brothers are thinking exactly like the world. They're just good Jews. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. Right? They're just going to do what every good Jew does at this time of the year, which is go up to the Feast of Tabernacles. And uh, that's important if you're a Jew. In fact, it was the most popular feast to the Jews of all. It was much more popular than Passover. Uh, one of the reasons it was popular is because, you know, it's kind of a good feast to be talking about on Memorial Day because it was sort of a camping festival. Okay? The, the Jews kind of went camping for a week. And uh, so, you know, that's, it's a little bit like Memorial Day in that sense, you know, and they were kind of grilling out. Um, you know, it talks about, uh, well, if you look at Leviticus chapter 23, I think it is, uh, it talks about this festival. I'll get back there eventually. A couple of places to look at would be Leviticus chapter 23, starting with verse 33. It's talking about the feast here. And in verse 33, it begins talking about the Feast of Tabernacles. And it says, The Lord said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, On the fifteenth day of the seventh month, the Lord's Feast of Tabernacles begins, and it lasts for seven days. The first day is a sacred assembly. Do no regular work. For seven days present offerings made to the Lord by fire. See that? They're grilling out, right? Offerings made to the Lord by fire. And on the eighth day, hold a sacred assembly and present an offering made to the Lord by fire. Okay? So, very simply, seven days, they're living in tents, right? And they're making offerings by fire. Does that sound like Memorial Day? <laughs> Sounds like it to me, right? And, and then uh, if you look at Deuteronomy 16, I'll get there eventually. Starting with verse 13, it says, uh, Celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles for seven days after you have gathered the produce of your threshing floor and your wine press. Be joyful at your feast. You, your sons and daughters, your manservants and maidservants, and the Levites, the aliens, the fatherless, and the widows who live in your town, for seven days celebrate the feast to the Lord your God at the place the Lord will choose. For the Lord your God will bless you in all your harvest and in all the work of your hands, and your joy will be complete. Pretty cool, huh? Th this is the Feast of Tabernacles. It's the most joyous festival on the calendar. And um, not only that, everybody comes. They all live in tents. Even the people who have a house in Jerusalem build a tent in their backyard to live in for a week, right? And grill out, of course. You know, got to do that. Have a few steaks, you know, offering by fire. And uh, so, and it really, it's to celebrate God's provision to the people. It's to celebrate the harvest. Um, 
And, and Gentiles are invited, as it says, you know, uh, people who are interested can come. Everybody can come. So there's a lot of people there. It's kind of Godstock in a way, you know. They're just kind of all hanging out together in a field and grilling stuff. It, it's, it's just a, a cool day. And then the last day, the eighth day of the festival, is called the greatest day. And in fact, later on, Dave will be talking about this next week, Jesus makes a speech to them on the greatest day. Verse 37 of chapter 7, it says, On the last and greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. So, see, Jesus is again pointing out who he is. And he goes to the festival at the right time to do that. But he's not going to do it at the time that his brothers want him to do it for the reason that it's not what God wants him to do. So we're celebrating thanks for the harvest. We're celebrating God's care for Israel in in the desert. And we're celebrating, it is associated with the triumphant day of the Lord. Okay, This festival is associated with the triumphant day of the Lord, which is spoken of in Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 14. I'm not going to go there right now, but if you look at that chapter, verse 9, it talks about how the Lord will use the nations to punish Jerusalem. Then He will, use, then he will punish the nations. And then finally, the Lord will become the King of the earth on the triumphant day of the Lord. So this was associated with um, a time when the Jews were thinking about the Lord not only in the past, but in the future. A time when they were thinking about the Lord becoming the King of the earth. And the festival was linked with the concept of living water, the concept of rain and the harvest, and the ingathering of all the nations at the end of the age. There was a lot of symbolism to this festival. And and much of it was about thinking about what God had done for them in the past and what He would be doing in the future. So Jesus says, it's not my time. I'm not yet going to go with you. You go ahead. And He stays in Galilee. Now, as we get to verse 10, after his brothers went to the feast, we see that Jesus did in fact go to the feast, but he went in secret. He went incognito. You know, he wore the hat and the glasses and the beard. You know, I I guess if he was already in a beard, he maybe shaved it off. I don't know. But in any event, he went in a way that people wouldn't recognize him right away. And... Part of the reason for this is in verse 11 because, you know, basically what you see is they got the FBI, you know, those guys with the with the little things in their ear that are communicating and they're saying, "Okay, have you seen him yet? No, haven't seen him yet. Uh, I see his brothers, though. There they all are. And he's got to be around here somewhere. Right. And so they've got everybody out looking for him. Where is this guy? Because if he's coming back to Judea, remember in, in chapter 5, they were already wanting to kill him. So they're looking to arrest this guy, and eventually they will try to arrest him 
It'll be interesting to see what happens when they do. But, you know, they're out for him. And, and all the people are talking about him, you know. They're, they're whispering because they don't want anybody to hear them talking about them because that would be dangerous. And you have some people saying, uh, you know, this Jesus guy, he's a great guy. I mean, he's really wonderful. He's a good man. He's done good things. And you have other people saying, no, he's a liar and a deceiver. You know, he's, he's trying to deceive people. So we have these two different opinions of Jesus. And about halfway through the festival then, Jesus comes to the feast. And he goes to the temple courts and he begins to teach. And, uh, you know, as a, as a person who does a little bit of teaching, um, you, you kind of get intimidated by this because you say to yourself, oh boy, that must have been something. Can you imagine sitting in the temple courts and listening to Jesus teach? Um, I'm sure all of you have thought this, you know, this next verse. I'm sure all of you have thought this when you've heard me teach, right? It says, The Jews were amazed and asked, How did this man get such learning without having studied? Well, you're right about the without having studied part. But, you know, the learning thing, I don't know. But, you know... They listened to Jesus teach and they said, wow, this guy is amazing. You know, he is really hitting us in the heart. He understands my life. He's helping me. There was a lot about his teaching that was meat, you know, grilling steaks, meat, that kind of thing. But, uh, you know, Jesus says, well... You know, they're asking the question, how did you learn this? And see, if you were a Jew, there, there would be one good answer to that question. Um, and, and the answer would be, I learned it from Rabbi X. Okay? Because the Jews were really big on authority. See, I'm a lawyer, and I understand the concept of authority. Because if I go into a courtroom, I'm, I'm in the temple courts now, okay? And I'm teaching in the temple courts over at Polk County. And, and the judge says to me, Okay, Mr. Ogden, where did you get that silly idea you just told me? And, and my answer is authority, right? I cite him the chapter and verse of the case in which I found that principle. Now, if I were to say to this judge, Uh... Judge, um, the authority is mine. You know, I've, I've sort of thought about it and, and I've, you know, uh, used my intellectual powers and I've come up with this, Judge, and this should be a great way to do the law. The judge would say, <laughs> Sorry, Mr. Ogden, but we don't accept the Ogden law. We, that's not authority in this court, Right? So if people were listening to teaching, they wanted to hear what authority this came from. Was it Scripture? Was it a, a valid interpretation of Scripture from a rabbi that they had learned and studied for many years? Those were the things that Jesus could use as authority. Um, if he had said, well, don't worry about the authority, it's me, okay? I'm the authority, he would have got the same reaction from the Jews that I would get at Polk County. 
they would say, ludicrous. We don't accept that authority. That's not what Jesus said. See, what he said was, my teaching is not my own. It comes from him who sent me. Who's that guy? It would be the Father, wouldn't it? Right? If anyone chooses to do God's will, he will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. He who speaks on his own does not, does so to gain honor for himself, but he who works for the honor of the one who sent him is a man of truth. There is nothing false about him. Right? He says, the teaching I have, it came from my father. That's where I got it. And, and if you want to test it, if you want to know whether it's true, how do you do it? Well, do what I say. Right? Do what I say. And, and, and you'll see whether that is authoritative teaching or not. Do you see what he's saying? And uh, he, he then says, he goes on and he says, Has not Moses given you the law? Yet not one of you keeps the law. He says, you're not obeying, guys. You're not really doing what the law says to do. For example, why are you trying to kill me? Okay, now, some people might say that Jesus was hanging around Galilee because he was afraid. You know, he didn't want to go up to Judea because there were people trying to kill him. Well, I think we've just kind of put the lie to that one. All right? Because Jesus did go up to the temple courts and he taught authoritatively and then he said to the people, are you listening to the law? Are you doing it? And oh, by the way, why is it that you're trying to kill me? Now, does that sound like a guy who's got fear motivating him? Uh, No, I don't think so. This is a challenge that Jesus made. And it's a challenge that's relevant to us today. The crowd's response was, <laughs> you're demon-possessed, right? Man, you crazy. There's something wrong with you, right? What are you talking about, boy? There ain't nobody trying to kill you. Is that what they said? Yeah, that's what they said. Jesus said, look, you know, guys, I did one miracle, Okay? I did one miracle, and you're all astonished. And then he begins to talk to them about the fact that, you know, he's, he says, it's okay for me to do that miracle on the Sabbath. Why is it okay for me to do that miracle on the Sabbath? Well, think about it. You know, you circumcise kids on the Sabbath, don't you? I mean, that's work, isn't it? Under your definition. And yet you do it. And why do you do it? Because Moses said you could. Well, but it wasn't even Moses, because if you look back in Genesis, it was Abraham who was told to circumcise kids. So, you guys are not really thinking this through. You're just kind of following what you've been doing. You're not really thinking this through and understanding what it is that you're to do. That's your problem. You're just kind of going based on what people have told you to do. You're not using your brain and thinking about it. And he says, frankly, you need to stop judging by just what you're supposed to do. And you need to think about using your head. 
I'm sure that's a message that gained him a whole lot of followers at that point. Right? But it's a message we need to hear. It's a message we need to hear because he's talking about taking our faith deeper than it is now. And, and I would give you three principles. Um, can you put those up for me, Rob? Three principles that I get from this passage about taking our faith deeper. First principle, expect conflict, okay? What you've got to understand is that we are on a mission. Jesus was on a mission. There was one thing that He had to do. And He was not going to let anybody keep Him from doing that one thing. Right? Well, it's no different for us today. We've been given one thing to do. You've heard about that. You know, Matthew, whatever it is, 28 or somewhere in there. Uh, Jesus says, you know, all authority has been given to me. I'm going to be with you. There's one thing I want you to do. And that's make disciples. All right? Make disciples of all nations. Bring them to me. That's the one thing you need to do. Now, in Jesus doing His one thing, He was in constant battle with people because they all had different things they wanted Him to do. They wanted Him to become king. You know, There's all sorts of different things that they had for Him. But Jesus had to stay focused on His mission. And, and as a church... We should not respond. We, we should expect that we are going to have conflict because we have a mission, but everybody wants us to do other stuff. And, and so there's going to be conflict in that. And there's going to be times when, you know, we're going to be in real disagreement with people about the best way to accomplish this. But what we have to do is to learn from Jesus. And stay focused on our mission. A, a lot of times, we do everything we can to avoid conflict. And, and I think a lot of times the church has stepped in some real doggy do because all we want to do is keep from people from getting mad at us. Right? And, and trust me, there's a lot of folks mad at the church these days. And it's getting worse. You know, if you want to look at our poll numbers, they might be going this way. But that's okay, because see, same thing happened to Jesus. It should not divert us from our mission. Second thing, to take your faith deeper. Engage your mind. Okay? So many of us don't really want to think about our faith. And, and I think for some of us, it's because we're afraid. If we think too deeply about this, you know... Bad things might happen. There's all these people who say that there's lots of contradictions in the Bible. And, you know, it, any person who's really got a brain can't believe the Bible, right? Have you heard that before? I have. And, and, and so, you know, I think sometimes we don't want to engage our mind because we're afraid what we're going to find if we do. Um, 
And, and I certainly don't want to hold myself up as, as you know, some intellectual giant, because I'm certainly not. I, I've got people over here who can tell you that. But, you know, I've read a lot of books and, and done a lot of study. And so far, I haven't seen anything that has shaken my faith in Jesus as the, the Christ and the Son of God. He is worthy of our belief. And... He is worthy of our study because every person we meet is somebody who is new, who who has an objection or a challenge to make. And we need to be as prepared for those things as we can. We need to make our faith as deep as we can on an intellectual level because that will help us to carry out our mission. So, you know... It's easy to kind of watch TV all day. I've done it. You know, that's a simple thing to do, to get involved in American Idol and Dancing with the Stars and, you know, you name it, it's out there. I've done it, okay? I'm, I'm not criticizing anybody. What I'm saying is we can't get diverted from our mission. We need to take the time to understand our faith and to be able to explain it. Because that is more necessary now than it's ever been. Third thing about taking our faith deeper is exercising obedience. This is a key. Do you see what Jesus told him? He said, there's one way to know if this is true. There's one way to know if what I'm telling you is true. Do it. Right? That's how you understand God's will. You do it. You do what God says to do. And when you do that, you will see the truth of the message. And I often think that this is another area where we stumble and fall down in taking our faith deeper. You know? Um... We don't really want conflict, so we try to stay away from it. We don't want to engage our mind, but even if we do, we may have an intellectual understanding of our faith, but we don't have a boots-on-the-ground understanding of our faith. We're not willing to carry it out in our daily lives because that would be too tough. Okay? And Jesus says, Don't just appear to be a Christian. You know? Don't be a Christian based on mere appearances. Don't be my follower. Don't make everybody think you're my follower, but then go do other things. Because that takes you off into the weeds. And you guys are in the weeds. That's what he's telling them. You don't even know who I am. You know? And if you look all the way through the Old Testament, you see me. But you haven't figured it out because you're off in the weeds. So those things we need to do, we must do, if we're going to take our faith deeper. Let's pray. Father, we confess to you today that very often we allow the world to beat us down and 
we allow our bad poll numbers to get us worried. And we allow our fears about life to lead us astray. But I pray, Father, today that we would take the words of Jesus to heart, the message that he gave us, a message of courage, a message of faith, a a message of obedience. I pray, Father, that we would hear him and do what he says and come to know him as a man of truth and you as our loving Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.